You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Yeah, welcome back. Good to have you. It's been a little while, but um, I'm, I'm back here and uh, excited about the day. I didn't think I would be. In fact, I haven't done the podcast for a little while because I expected this topic to come up and I didn't want it to. So I'm going to tell you about what that is in just a moment. Once you check out my friend Ethan Kelly at Providence Capital Management, specializing in personal and institutional investment management. Uh, you can check him out at ProvidenceCM.com. Uh, to learn more about what he does. Uh, he's a new sponsor of the program. I'm a big, big, big Ethan Kelly fan. And if you have this way, you need to make sure you contact him or you can just contact him at Ethan at ProvidenceCM.com. So that's ProvidenceCM.com. Check him out. I think you'll be impressed with him. I like him. Check him out, Ethan Kelly. And again, uh, we appreciate his sponsorship of the program. Okay, so this is the topic that... I haven't done a podcast for a little while because I didn't want to do this one. And, uh, you know, I, I try to read through the Bible. In fact, this year, I'm doing something a little bit special. I'm trying to read through the Bible twice. And I'm finding a, a pretty delightful exercise. If you zoom through it and you take more than just, you know, a little portion every day, you take larger portions, then boy, it just, it feels different. And if you do that with two parts of the Bible, both Old and the New Testament, then what happens is you got a lot more to compare and contrast with. And I think the Lord does some work in, you know, reading through two major swaths of material in, in the Old and New Testament. Of course, I'm praying through 15 Psalms a day anyway. So all of this is really rich for me. Here we go, drum roll, drum roll. I went through the book of Job the other day. And uh, it, it took a couple of days, obviously, but oh my goodness, not my favorite book, but it, I think it's exceedingly important. It's not my favorite book because the whole guts of the thing is these three friends that come to Job in his suffering. And at the end of the book, God wipes the whole thing away. So yeah, that, what they said, they <laughs> what they were saying wasn't very trustworthy. Saying, well, wait a minute, that's the whole book. So you're just saying, well, so what they say is not trustworthy. Where does that leave us? And so I've never really appreciated the book, but I do think it's important because it deals with the huge topic of human suffering. Uh, there is a description, of course, of what all happens here is, first off, it says the, the Job was a man blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He had 10 kids, seven sons, three daughters. He had all kinds of possessions, made him one of the greatest men of all the East, says scripture. So you've got all this. And then one day, Satan and the Lord have a conversation. And uh, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. And listen, that he's blameless, upright, fearing God and turning from evil isn't just the opinion of the writer of the book. It's the opinion of God. Because God says, this guy, this Job guy is blameless, upright fearing God, turning away from evil. And Satan says, well, that's because his life's easy. I mean, he's prosperous. He's living the dream. And so Satan wants to attack him. And the Lord says, well, attack him. 
if that's what you want to do, have your way with him. And because God's thinking, hey, I still think he's going to be that at the end. And at the end, indeed, in fact, he is. So he's stacked, first of all, with his possessions. His wife comes out against him. And then, of course, his health is attacked. And it's just an incredible story. And then, of course, in his suffering, sores all over his body, just a bloody mess. Here comes his friends. And his friends want to speak into his life. And uh, I tell you what. You got to love friends and you got to love friends when they show up, when no one else is showing up. These three guys show up and they start speaking to his life. Now, at the end, pretty much everything they say apparently is not trustworthy, not enough to say, hey, we can really bank on that. You got to meditate on what they said across the uh, decades of your life. It's not what happens. So there's going to be these three friends and there's going to come another one at the end. And what they share basically is the typical wisdom of the day. And that is, if you do right, God's going to bless you. I mean, if you live the way you're supposed to live, you're going to get blessed. And can I say, I think on the whole, that is the natural consequence of living right. That if you live like God wants you to live, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm thinking, hey, for crying out loud, don't drink. It's dumb to drink. It's terrible to drink. If you don't drink, your chances for success in life, I think, are substantially greater. You know, I just, you know, I'm around guys that are addicted to alcohol all the time. I'm uh, I've been around recovery programs most of life. I'm just, I'm just thinking addiction is not a good thing for human flourishing. So you know, you know, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't, you know, all these terrible habits. If you don't do that stuff, you're going to be okay. But that's not what people are meaning when they say if you live right. They're thinking, hey, if you live without sin, and that's the typical theology even of of today in much of the world, and even today in much of evangelicalism. If you live right, everything's going to be okay. God will bless you. If you live wrong, God's going to get you. And it just ain't so. Not quite to to the extent that we're thinking. I do think if you have good, healthy habits, good, healthy things tend to happen for those people more than the other. But that's not what this book is about. And so I I think the typical typical wisdom of the day, uh, pretty much any age, is if you live right, God's going to take care of you. If you live wrong, and, and I think, I'll tell you what, I think a lot of tithing and things like that are done, church attendance, I think a lot of works of piety, because we do them out of the hope God will see us and God will like us better. And uh, so I, I still think we got that thing woven into our uh, our spiritual brains a little bit too much. Out of this whole thing, Job asks the question, why? And thing is, the thing comes down to more than why, it comes down to who. And I think that is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way to conceive all these things. The why question is the biggest apologetic question of human history and certainly today. The thing people want to know is not what is the resurrection true. What people really want to know is, hey, why do I suffer? Hey, why do they suffer? Why suffering? And there's got to come some kind of balance in your brain over that question. And if there's not, boy, it can lead you right down the path of godlessness and even atheism. So I haven't said that. Uh, just a couple of discipleship lessons I want to bring out today. And that's what we're doing with all these books of the Bible. Let's let's see if we can't draw on some, some discipleship le- uh, lessons. And the first one is this. Apparently, you can live the way God wants you to live. There's a lot of evangelicalism out there that says, no, 
every day and every way, you're going to be messing up. You're going to be sinning. Sin's more powerful than you could ever imagine. I'm going to tell you, I believe sin is a lot more powerful than most of us can imagine. But I think God is more powerful still. And here's a man named Job that was blameless. He was upright. He was fearing God. And then he was turning away from evil. That's just a description of he was living like the Lord wanted him to live. I think it's possible. And you, I think, need to have on, if you're going to be a serious disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to have a, a theology that leads you to believe that, yes, I can live like he wants me to live. That's first thing. And basically what we understand today is you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, no question about it, but you need something even deeper than that. That is, you need the fullness of the spirit of Jesus. And that's what the day of Pentecost is. That's what Acts 2 is, is they get the fullness. And when they get the fullness, listen, before they had the fullness, they're behind closed doors for fear. They're betraying him. They've spent, (laughs) these disciples have spent three years with God, walking with him, talking with him, eating with him, sleeping next to him. I mean, they have spent three years with God and yet they're denying him. They're betraying him. Even after resurrection, they're behind closed doors for fear. Boy, when Pentecost comes, when they're full of spirit, that's a whole different thing that happens after Acts 2. And so apparently there is a way to live like God wants you. You need a relationship with Jesus and you need the fullness of the triune God. That is the fullness of the spirit. And so just bank on that. And I think we need to disciple people recognizing this life that Jesus wants us to live is possible. It's not impossible. It's not too high in the sky. It's it's just not too much for us. It's possible. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Remember that great passage? Is it, uh, I think it's Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. True, true, true that. But not all the time the way you think. (laughs) Sometimes your friends come up with counsel that's just wrong. And y'all, we got to remember this. Anything that we're counseled with needs to run up against scripture and scripture in context and scripture as we understand it through a strong biblical theology. Because sometimes our godly friends even can be wrong as wrong can be. And that's what happens with these three friends and eventually a fourth that come into Job's life. They're just, they're not trustworthy. It's, it sounds like everything that we've ever heard good theology, it sounds like they're right on. But apparently they are not. So iron sharpens iron. I think these guys sharpen Job just plenty. But I think they sharpen Job in a different kind of way. And that is, hey, we're here. We're testing you with our good counsel. Come along with us. Believe what we're saying. Uh, you know, adopt our theology because you're saying you're you're blameless, but you're not. Of course you're not blameless. And Job's sitting there saying, I, I can't go with you guys. I can't do it. I can't do it. I know that I have a walk with the Lord. I have something real with him, and it's nothing like what you're describing right now. So I would say the first discipleship lesson is we can live like God wants us to live. And the second is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, but it might not always be with good counsel that they sharpen you. I think Job comes out of this thing better than ever because he stood steadfast even in the midst of some bad counsel. The third thing is this. Don't over... (laughs) This is just me personally. Don't overlook the hard books of the Bible. 
And don't overlook the hard passages of the Bible. You just need to listen. I don't. I, I got to this portion of my Bible reading plan. And again, I'm trying to make it through twice this year. And frankly, that's going so well. I'm thinking about making it three times next year. Just let me make it through the Bible three times uh, this year. I, I, I just, I'm just loving doing that. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. I'm not even saying it's the best way to do it. Just for now, it's really working well for me. So having said that, I got the job. I said, I don't want to read. I just don't want to do this. And uh, and I just feel like you need to struggle through some of these books anyway, and maybe even especially the hard passages of the Bible, the hard books of the Bible, because you may be surprised what God can add to your life as you spend time in places where you don't want to be. That's including in the Bible. So don't overlook the hard passages. I would say this, one of the main things that had kind of was a surprise to me, someone said it, I said, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. That's the other thing. That's why you spend hard times or, or times in hard passages of the Bible, because you may end up seeing something you've never seen before. And here it is. In chapter 42, the, the, this last chapter of the book of Job, it talks about hey, how, uh, how, you know, the, the starting to wrap up the book, it gets down here to the last paragraph. And it says in 42.10, the Lord also restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord increased double all that Job had. When he became outward, he wasn't worried about him so much as I'm worried about my friends. I need to pray for them. I know they, they say they're my friends, but they've been almost acting like enemies. And I'm a little irritated with them. I'm a little perturbed with them. I just want to pray for them. I don't want them to find disfavor with God over this whole ordeal. I'm praying for them. It was an outward bound prayer. And, and y'all, I think there's power in praying for those who abuse you, praying for those who don't understand you praying for those who might persecute you, just praying for them. And through those prayers, let God do an amazing, beautiful, wonderful, glorious thing. I want to read to you something that I think is really incredibly profound on this topic of praying for those who might be abusing you, praying for those who don't understand you, praying for those who might be persecuting you. This is found, I forget where I found this, but I've got it on my Evernote page, but somewhere I ran into this and it just it just blew my mind. It was found on a wrapping paper in the Ravensbrook concentration camp where they held Jews, persecuted Jews, incinerated Jews. And uh, this is what it said. Lord, this is a prayer on a piece of wrapping paper in this concentration camp. Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Remember rather the the fruits we brought, thanks to this suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits we have borne be their forgiveness. <laughs> now, how do you pray that prayer and not be better? I mean, that's extraordinary stuff. So here it is. When Job prayed for his friends, God restored his fortunes and he increased double all that Job had. He was 
incredibly wealthy to begin with. Now he's double. I would just suggest to you that's beautiful stuff. But it happened when he prayed for his friends. Now, I, I, I went through all that, and we're going to get to the big thing, and that is suffering, human suffering. Y'all, this suffering thing is huge, and you've got to come to grips with it in your own life. And if you don't, uh, you will not grow in discipleship like Jesus wants you to grow. And I think there's two ways that suffering comes. It can come to you or it can come to others that you look at and say, I don't understand why they have to go through this. I don't know if any of you remember Billy Graham, of course, y'all y'all know, but Billy Graham had a friend in his early youth for Christ days named Charles Templeton. And, and Templeton was a brilliant mind, an incredible personality. And to hear people tell it, he was at least as good, maybe better than Billy Graham at speaking. And his Billy Graham's one of Billy Graham's best friends. He went on to school, and as he was in school, he was enlightened. And uh, when he got enlightened, then he started looking at the world a little bit differently, uh, not through the eyes that Billy Graham saw it through, but through the eyes of you know these elite schools that he'd gone to that were you know kind of left of center in all their theological meanderings. And there came a time when he saw a picture of a woman and she had a baby and uh, it was an African woman, an African baby, and they were dying. They were hungry. They were suffering. And that was the moment he gave up his faith and he became agnostic. He became someone who just says, I toss it aside. I'm not going to be like Billy anymore. I'm not going to have that shallow faith. All God needs to do is send a little rain and if you can't do that, then he can't be God. And Charles Templeton, because of human suffering, he couldn't get his theological brain around the fact that some people suffer. And we can't tell where God is in that moment. He gave it up. He gave his faith up. And uh, if you want to read more about that episode and more about Charles Templeton, it's in Lee Strobel's book on faith. And uh, Lee Strobel does a great job, but he actually interviews Charles Templeton. I think you really appreciate and enjoy that. And I was thinking about that. It reminded me of a gentleman named Kevin Carter. You may remember that name. I doubt. It's been some time now. But 1994, South African photojournalist Kevin Carter won the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography. Now you can just imagine if, if you're in the business, I mean, that you would win a Pulitzer Prize is the greatest day of your life. This photograph brought him fame. And the photograph was of an emaciated Sudanese child crawling toward a feeding center under the hard stare of a nearby vulture. Go, go check it out. Kevin Carter, Pulitzer Prize, Google it, go check it out. It's, it's an amazing photograph. And that image drew international attention to Kevin Carter's career. And he all of a sudden became a celebrity. And so he, he was asked to go speak at places. And when he was speaking, eventually the question would come up, whether it was in front of a, a group he was speaking to or just in personal conversations. But the question always came up, hey, what happened to that kid? You took, you took a picture of the suffering kid. What happened to him? We want to know what happened to him. And what happened was after snapping his camera, Carter, after spending about 20 minutes framing the shot, making sure it's just right, the kid wasn't going anywhere, Vulture wasn't going anywhere, they, he got it all ready to go, he took the picture, then he walked away. So within two months of receiving 
the Pulitzer Prize, journalism's most coveted award, the 33-year-old photojournalist took his own life, committed suicide. And in his suicide note, he said, I'm really, really sorry. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy doesn't even exist. And he died, took his own life. Now, years later, in the Sudan, it's still in turmoil, ravaged by a brutal civil war, more than 2 million people dead. But Dwayne Litvin, who's the president of Wheaton College, sent out a letter to his alumni that talked not only about Carter, but also talked about a guy named Dr. Warren Cooper. He was a Christian, worked as a, as a surgeon with Samaritan's person in Southern Sudan. The suffering that this man has seen, they say it's just absolutely and utterly indescribable. And yet after five years in a hospital, it's been called a living history museum of pathology. No plans to leave. Not at that point when this was written. No plans on leaving. And so the question was asked, how does he cope? Why does Kevin Carter take his life? But Dr. Warren Cooper, who sees this every day, lives with it every day, is pained by it every day, asks God a question of why every day. How does Cooper cope? And for Warren, the field of medicine allows him to live out his Christian faith, not just in word, but in deed. He says, I think it'd be very hard to continue doing this if you didn't have a sense of ultimate meaning to what you were doing. In other words, there's meaning here. And what I know the meaning of my life is, yes, there's suffering, but I, at least in some small part, am the solution. God working through me, through my hands, through the, the tools of surgery, uses me to alleviate some pain, some suffering in this world the ultimate meaning of what you're doing. I just love that. Now, as far as suffering is concerned, uh, there's another perspective that I saw one day on the internet from a lady named Kim Henderson from Proverbs 31 Ministries. I have no idea what that is. I have, I just saw this one day and I, I, I jotted it down, wanted to make sure that people like you'd have a chance here too. And, and this is what Kim Henderson says, you know, I would have pulled Joseph out. I mean, out of that pit, out of the prison, out of the pain. I would have cheated nations out of the one God who would use to deliver them from famine. Yeah, Joseph, the guy that'd go to Egypt and become second command, and that Joseph, yeah, when he was in a pit, the pit that led him to that kind of Egyptian hierarchy, and then, of course, the ability to save his people from starvation, she goes, I'd have pulled him out of the pit. Now, when I did that, that might have really botched up the huge, wonderful, glorious plan that God had to use that pit in part, and that jail in part, and the wrong accusations of Potiphar's wife in part. God used it all to save people. Then she says, you just keep going. She keeps running down the list. I would have pulled David out, out of Saul's spear-throwing presence, out of the case he hid away in, out of the pain of rejection. I would have cheated Israel out of a God-hearted king. <laughs> so I would have pulled Esther out, out of being snatched from her only family, out of being placed in a position she never asked for, out of the path of a vicious, power-hungry foe. I would have cheated people. I would have cheated people by doing that out of the woman God would use to save their very lives. 
I would have pulled Jesus off, off the cross, off the road that led to suffering and pain, off the path that would mean nakedness and beatings, nails and thorns. I would have cheated the entire world out of a savior, out of salvation, out of an eternity filled with no more suffering and no more pain. And, and by the way, I see you, my friend, are suffering. I want to pull you out. I want to change your path. I want to stop your pain. But right now, I know I'd be wrong. I'd be out of line. I'd be cheating you and cheating the world out of so much good because God knows. He knows the good this pain will produce. He knows the beauty this hardship will grow. He's watching over you and keeping you even in the midst of all of this. He's promising you that you can trust him even when it all feels like more than you can bear. So instead of trying to pull you out, what I'm going to do is lift you up. I'm kneeling before the Father, and I'm asking him to give you strength, to give you hope. I'm asking him to protect you and to move you when the time is right. I'm asking him to help you stay prayerful and discerning. I'm asking him how I can best love you, to be of help to you. I'm believing he's going to use your life in powerful and beautiful ways, ways that will leave your heart grateful and humbly thankful for this road you've been on. Wow. What an incredible piece of writing. Now, let me say, there's some human suffering. I think everyone is called. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I think taking up the cross is, listen, his cross was bleeding and dying for humanity. That's not your cross. Your cross may be, I see prisoners in my community that, uh, that need hope and need help. 77, 80% of them go right back into the system. They need Jesus so they don't go back into the system and, and just continue to do the same stupid thing over and over and hurt people as well as hurt themselves. Prisoners become the way I think I can be used to alleviate some pain. And then all of a sudden you become like Dr. Warren Cooper. Kevin Carter walked away, committed suicide. Dr. Warren Cooper saw a whole lot worse things than Kevin Carter ever saw, but he stayed and tried to help, and that becomes his salvation. So y'all, I'm, I'm going to see that you say salvation by works. No, salvation by saying, I want to serve the people Jesus wants me to serve. My call on my life, Jesus' call on my life is to run to the sound of the pain. Now, Having said that, you can't always be pulling Joseph out. You can't always be pulling David out. You can't always be pulling Esther out. Y'all, you've got to know that there's suffering in the world, and God intends to use every lickety split of it. He wants to use all of it for his kingdom and for his glory. So you just got to know. Sometimes you run to the sound of the pain, and sometimes things just need to happen, and they're happening all over the world. You just can't let the suffering crush your faith. And with Job, it was suffering that was coming to him, and he didn't let it crush his faith. At the end of it, he comes out stronger than ever before. I, uh, I listened years ago to a young evangelist, and uh, I don't know where he found the poem, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I looked and looked for it, and uh, I finally said, I can't find it. Let me just memorize it from what he said. And so I took what he said, wrote it down on a piece of paper, memorized this. I actually have it in front of me now because I uh, want to start memorizing things and start repeating them on, on like podcasts. Sometimes I forget. But I finally found it years, years later. I finally found it in a book by Oswald Sanders called Spiritual Leadership. Any of you ever read that book? Pretty good. 
but the poem that that young evangelist shared went like this. And I think you need to keep it in mind. I need to keep it in mind for our own discipleship. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. Into trial shapes a clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he, God, how he bends but never breaks when this good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Y'all, God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. There's going to be suffering in your life and in mine. We need to ask the question why. It's a good question. But the far greater question is who? And if we can come out of our suffering with a bigger conception of the who, that is going to be worth it all. Five discipleship lessons out of the book of Job. Didn't think I'd be able to do it. Now I'm so very glad that I did. All right, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listen to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedemann. Check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship. And remember our books at Amazon.com. Teleos books, a lot of good stuff there. Just type in Matt Friedman into the search engine Amazon and just go see what's offered. Always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to life-changing discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. Mm-hmm.